Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today we have author, activist, and minister Elle Dowd. She wrote um, the book Baptized in Tear Gas, which I read very quickly. I ingested it. It was so informative, but also beautiful and... Um, vulnerable so 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 vulnerable and today is definitely going to have a lot of like triggering topics in it about police violence and the concepts of defunding the police and activism and blm but i think it's so valuable if you can stomach it to stay for this conversation because i think this will help give anyone who is interested basically a defense of being able to defend this movement and to be a part of it as a Christian or non-Christian or anyone. Um, and then also just so you have a little bit of, or a lot of it of information on how to defend it to people that are naysayers or that don't want to get involved in what I see as a beautiful, beautiful movement of God. So hi, Elle. <laughs> hi, it's so good to be here. Yes, I'm so excited to have you. We've got a lot to get into here. And if I ever ask a question that's too much or whatever, please let me know and we'll pivot. But, um, but your book is so open and vulnerable that I find it hard to believe I'd cross that moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty, like, I really value, I think like you do, like, I really value transparency because I think a lot of the dysfunction, particularly when it comes to the church and religion and spirituality functions because of secrecy or you know certain people having knowledge that other people don't have like on purpose like as a power move so I try to model that as much as I can right okay that's beautiful I kind of want to like disarm people maybe as much as we possibly can off the bat because there is going to be so much information and wisdom that you're going to be able to impart and the thing that I love, love, loved about Baptized in Tear Gas is that it is a broad invitation to anyone, like um, especially people that are not of color or people that are not basically forced to be in the movement because we don't have to be. And we all know the narratives, especially in the evangelical church where everyone's posting their Blue Lives Matter flags or their All Lives Matter statements. And obviously, as a progressive Christian, it's been really disheartening to watch. But also, I just see such deep misunderstandings of what this movement about or why it is necessary. So how can we disarm anyone off the top of the conversation to let them know they're welcome? This is not a threatening thing. This is, this is an invitation. Yeah. Yeah. So first for me, I guess I'll just say a lot of the book is honestly me being really open about my own mistakes and shortcomings and my purpose in doing that um, besides the sort of level of accountability that I think is really important. One of the purposes is to sort of show like 
I'm not trying to come at this conversation as a person who has it all figured out, as a person who's like better than other people. Um, what I'm hoping is that I think parts of my story, just like parts of your story, Brenda, are, are things that people can resonate with, right? So particularly people like me who grew up, you know, in the suburbs, who grew up, I grew up in a mainline denomination, but it was very conservative. And so I think about, you know, the other people out there, the other kind of like nice white ladies out there um, and how these narratives that I see some of those folks repeating are things that I used to think and believe until I had these experiences during the Ferguson uprising. And so that's like my major sort of disclaimer as far as being disarming is that, um, you know, like I'm very much a work in progress and I learned pretty much all of this the hard way by making mistakes. And so my hope is that um, the book especially can kind of be like a partner in that and that we can sort of help each other not feel so alone as we're figuring it out. I love that. And also, can you just clarify why it's important for us to care or to be a part of this movement or to even understand its importance? Why? Yeah, so there's so many reasons, right? There's a lot, um, there's a lot that's at stake when we talk about Black liberation and dismantling white supremacy. So there's a lot at stake for people of color, obviously, because People of color are dying in the streets. Um, they're dying quick deaths by state violence, by police brutality, but also the slow deaths of communities being denied resources, access to healthcare. We're seeing that in the pandemic in record numbers. And so for people of color, kind of like you mentioned, it's, it's very urgent life or death stuff. And so, you know, that's what's at stake there is that our siblings and our neighbors are, are suffering. Um, and what's at stake for us as white folks is that our neighbors who are people of color are really made in the image and likeness of God. Um, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And yet, God, particularly throughout the Bible and my understanding of scripture, really shows a preference for people who are suffering. Mm -hmm. And Jesus um, experienced state violence himself. And so for white folks, particularly those of us who consider ourselves Christian or even spiritual, we will never truly know the heart of God. We will never understand God unless we can sort of dismantle white supremacy and sort of unlearn some of these narratives. And then what's at stake for the church is that our witness is very much in jeopardy. Um, it's very hard to take the church seriously about anything, love your neighbor or, or salvation or freedom or anything, um, when in the same breath the church is watching this genocide of our siblings and, and the white church largely uh, is not doing much to stop it. And so I think there's like really um, a lot at stake and what matters and they're all intricately connected, but um, I guess what I would say is that like, we all have a stake in this work. This isn't something that just affects other people, no matter who you are, like it affects you too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great thing to just consider the imperative of the church is dying because it's becoming less and less relevant to real life world needs. And, and that is something that should concern, like you said, mainline Christians who do want to stay relevant in this world. I also thought it was so stunning that you brought up the, the fact that Jesus was killed by state violence. And that is truly stunning too, because I really you know, I don't want to trash uh, other Christians, evangelicals, but I see so often this narrative of we're being persecuted because we have to wear masks or all of these little things that they'll champion. But 
we watched that persecution. And like you said, it was, it was a death by state. He was arrested like our black brothers and sisters and died as an innocent man who didn't need to die for what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do you find, and I'm sure you'll address this in, in the most compassionate way. Why is there such a defense if we hear the term white supremacy, or if we hear that our, you know, system that we've built, whether it be the prison industrial complex or just how the welfare state is built or whatever is lined with white supremacy. Why is that so offensive? And why do we feel we need to defend that? Yeah, the, that's a really great question. Um, my answer is that that is actually one of the ways that white supremacy is harming us as white people too because one of the hallmarks of white culture is this sort of idea that some people are disposable. And so one way that whiteness tries to overcompensate for that is this kind of like hyper perfectionism where we, you know, if we just earn our keep here as human beings, then maybe, you know, we'll be worthy of love and we'll be worthy of respect. Um, When in fact, there's nothing that anyone has to do, no human being has to do to be worthy of love and respect. That's something inherent about being a human. Um, And so this sort of, this feeling of defensiveness that arises when we hear words like white supremacy or when we're learning about the ways that we're implicated in these broader systems is because it can start to feel like, oh no, I'm a part of something bad which means maybe I'm bad, which means I'm disposable. And so of course people feel the impulse to fight back against it. But the fact is because whiteness works in such a way, our liberation is tied up with one another. And so this dismantling of white supremacy is a collective liberation that frees white people too from these hallmarks of white culture that hurt us. That's really, really, really interesting. I definitely understand the concept of like, no one is free until we're all free because if someone is in pain or in need, we're all gonna suffer. So many of my white brothers and sisters have complained about the welfare state or accused people of color of being lazy or profiting off that system or not wanting to work without having any desire or like honesty with their their research of those systems and why people have landed in that situation in the first place. So yeah, it, that's just really interesting to consider of that it is gravely harming all of us regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is a total aside, but there's also so much blame that I see about the statistics of uh, black women or women of color having abortions. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the genocide of black men and women in the streets dying at the hands of police, I'll watch conservatives again, shift the blame and be like, well, you guys are killing yourselves. The violence in your communities is black on black or people of color, people of color, or the violence is against the unborn. And what would you say to that? I know how I would argue that, but I feel like you're more compassionate in this than I am because I'm just like at a fever pitch of frustration, but you have a lot of grace. (laughs) Oh gosh. Well, you know what? Not everyone would say that. Some people think that I'm um, very strident or something. I don't know. Well, I haven't seen you on the streets, so (laughs) (laughs) you're a lady on the camera, freaking streets maybe. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think... um, you know, what I would say, first of all, I mean, I probably wouldn't say this if someone if someone brought this argument up to me, but of course that's a logical fallacy anytime that you are talking about one topic and someone sort of brings up the whataboutism of something else. But what I would say actually is that 
the state violence that we're seeing is actually really intricately connected to violence in communities. What we see statistically in the data is that the, the communities that are the safest, the communities with the lowest rates of violence, the communities with the lowest rates of crime, those communities are not necessarily the communities that have the most police and they're not the communities that have the most people locked up. What those communities have is that they have resources. The root cause of crime, the root cause of violence is a lack of resources. And so, um, you know, most, most violence is sort of within or against someone's own race just because of the nature of segregation in this country. Those are the people that you come across. Um, and so- Also the, the, the uh, punishment I've seen be more severe. If oh, someone of color, you know, enacts violence against a white person, Yes. It's over. Right. Whereas exactly. if they do it to their, you know, someone of their own race, it seems like the punishment is much less brutal. Right. Right. And especially, you know, I'm, in my city of Chicago, the murder clearance rate is abysmal, particularly uh, for black folks. And part of that is a very understandable and uh, righteous and correct distrust of law enforcement. Um, and a lot of it is because law enforcement is not invested in those communities except for to repress them um, and to uh, try to like control them, right? These communities. So yeah. I think what I would say about, um, you know, inter-community violence uh, versus state violence is that actually they have the same root cause and that same root cause is white supremacy and the abolition movement and conversations around defunding the police actually connect that really nicely. Because when we're talking about defunding the police, we're not just talking about sort of shrinking the police or abolishing the police just for the sake of getting rid of them. The point is to then take this money and reinvest in communities, not just like to be nice or something, yeah. but because that reinvestment is actually what gets to the root cause of crime. So instead of over-policing, which actually causes crime, it takes that money that we've invested in police and invests it in the communities that need it, the communities who have been intentionally divested from for decades. Mm. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that too is it always breaks my heart if I go into a grocery store in one of these communities that has less resources and all the baby formula is locked up. Yeah. And that is such a stunning to me example of the need. I'm like if if the problem has been the theft of diapers and baby formula, holy moly, why are we not investing properly in these communities? That's devastating. And that's what you're saying. Like we're blaming people in dire need of committing crimes of theft mm -hmm. in our glass houses where we have plenty of baby formula. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that, um, a way that the white supremacy functions is to try to divide us against each other, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that just like white folks have a stake in ending white supremacy, um, the way that white supremacy works is that it sort of tries to divide white folks and black folks and other people of color so that we're fighting over the same scraps of resources as opposed to looking at the real enemy and trying to dismantle you know, the real problem. Um, and so, what abolition does is looks at situations like you're talking about with with um, you know baby formula being locked up. Our current system really is a very white Western way of looking at things. It's very hyper individualistic, which is a hallmark of capitalism. And our current way of looking at things really zooms in on like one person and is like, 
Why did this one person do this one thing? They're bad and they need to be punished. Why did this person steal baby formula? It must be because they're bad and they need to be punished. But what abolition does is it looks at the story and zooms out and not only says, why did this person do this thing? But asks the question, why did all of us allow this situation to happen in the first place. And it, it's not a lack of accountability for individual harm, but it actually redistributes the harm much more justly to say, how did we as a community create this problem? And therefore, how are we as a community going to solve it and be accountable for it? Yeah, beautiful. And can you help to just articulate when, if we are on the journey and we are addressing this and and deciding even to dip our toe in and be like okay let me just ask the question are there white systemic roots in this nation is what they're saying true and that's what i would beg anyone listening to this just just take the stance of maybe i don't know maybe just maybe i don't know and come if you can from that place of humility because there's a lot of education to be had here um but when you're coming from that place then it's like well, I don't see people yelling the N-word on the streets at each other. I feel like is often the thing. Like, what are we talking about when we're saying systemic racism? Because I'm not seeing racism with my own eyes. I'm not seeing the products of this on my in my day-to-day. Even my Black friends don't get called the N-word. They've never told me that, you know, whatever the excuse may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, one thing to think about is that sometimes it's hard to see a problem when it doesn't affect you directly. Um, And I know for myself, for many years, and even, you know, at times today, as a white person, I'm not always safe for my friends of color to tell me when these things do happen. But I have black daughters now. And so I do get to see it firsthand. One of my daughters, the first time she had something um, very overtly racist, Um, said to her in the United States was when she was in kindergarten and a little white boy told her that black people were not beautiful right and so we kind of like to think um, you know that there's there's this like presumed sort of innocence or that maybe there are a few kind of folks who have you know, racist thoughts or tendencies, but it's a lot deeper than that. It's really in the air we breathe. It's kind of like the water we're swimming in. And so for all of us, it would be impossible not to internalize that. That six-year-old boy that said that to my little girl, he wasn't like a bad person. He's a product of this environment um, in this country, which was founded upon white supremacy and colonialism, um, built by slavery, and has continued to sort of reiterate in different forms throughout our history. And so um, I think for myself, right, this book, Baptized in Tear Gas, is really about my own transformation. It's like a conversion story. Mm -hmm. And my my kind of point of view before, and, you know, I thought of myself as a lover of justice, and I thought of myself as someone who, of course, would think racism is bad. Um, But I had a lot of racist tendencies because I didn't really understand what racism was. I sort of thought racism was, like you're saying, the N-word or, you know, people in Klan outfits or like literal Nazis, right? I thought that's what racism was. And obviously that's racism too. Um, But racism is more than that. It's not just these boogeymen that are like 100% monsters, all evil, all wrong. It's about the way that we design society um, and the way that our implicit biases then reinforce these systems. So um, a really good resource that really helped me understand the sort of systemic nature of all of this is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And she talks about the way 
uh, that Jim Crow or slavery has transformed into what we now see as mass incarceration in this country by creating a criminal underclass mm. of black and brown folks. Um, targeting black and brown folks for criminalization to fill our prisons as a way of perpetuating this in a, in a way that's systemic. And of course, that's, you know, about the criminal justice system, but it also exists in the way that we do housing, the way that we do school zoning, and so many other things. And so it's really very insidious. Um, but the current kind of crop of white supremacy is tricky because it knows that white supremacy is frowned upon, right? You can't just be like openly white supremacist. I mean, I guess some people do. And get away <laughs> yeah, we've seen some lately. Yeah, definitely. But there's, it's definitely like, um, at least in some, you know, polite circles or enlightened circles frowned upon. Um, and so then we get, we've kind of raised our kids or been raised on this false idea of colorblindness where it's like, oh, we'll just pretend there's no differences here. And, um, you know, naming uh, anything about race is actually really impolite and the cause of problems and the cause of division. Um, when in fact, what this sort of colorblind mentality does is it erases the experiences of people of color, it erases the differences in our experiences, and it acts as a cover for these systemic, uh, systemic injustices because it sort of says, hey, 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 no, we're just treating everyone equally, right, while still sort of going through the back door to target certain groups. And those groups are black and brown people. Yeah, I feel like the best example and me living in Hollywood is that I'm just like, look at Hollywood. If you do not believe that white supremacy is real, then explain to me why there has never been a casual black lead in a movie. It wasn't even conceivable. My entire childhood, even when I moved to LA at 19, there were not people of color getting lead roles. And if they were, it was like a big to-do and we can't believe this is happening. Or black stories are just black stories and brown stories are just brown stories. So that to me is just another example because then that props up who's beautiful, who's valuable, who is most likely to succeed, who is being represented the most in our media in this, in this very glamorous way. And it's, and then to your point, I definitely believe, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, please, because I haven't talked to anyone of color about this, but I feel like an idyllic world would be if by the time my son has children, we are colorblind, quote unquote, in the way that like a black leading character is not a thing that you even think about because it's so common or someone being a black CEO, same thing, common, nobody is even batting an eyelash. But in order to do that, we first have to say, okay, but the fruit is rotten on this tree. We have to uproot the entire tree, look at the roots, inspect the soil, and then we can plant the tree that blossoms into this idyllic state of we are actually all equal. Do you think that is fair or like ever going to happen or possible? Well, you know, I'm like, I, <laughs> I'm a big believer in spiritual imagination. So maybe I'm naive enough to think that like it will happen. Um, and grateful that God and the spirit has allowed us to choose to be a part of it, making that happen. I think what I would say is, I don't know. Um, I don't think that like the end goal would be colorblindness in the way that we understand it now. I think I agree with this idea of, wouldn't it be great if it was just, you know, liberation and equality was so normalized that it wasn't news, right? Yeah. Um, but I think one really important thing is that when we sort of act like, 
and I'll speak from my own experience. Growing up, I thought colorblindness was really good. Me too. Um, and I was like, yeah, colorblindness, right? We're all the same. And what I realized was, was I had somehow internalized because of white supremacy that black was like a dirty word, right? Same. So, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> I was I'm like, we're allowed to call people black people? What? <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it was like this idea that we've been conditioned into that being black is like bad or dirty or wrong or inherently inferior. And so instead of wanting to sort of just like cover over these differences, I think um, a more liberatory approach would be to do the type of truth telling that you really named, really be honest about what's been happening, who we are, what our story is. And then even when there is like total liberation, instead of sort of pretending you know, that they're, that we're all the same or something to really like notice and celebrate the differences, but that the differences wouldn't lead to disparities in things like justice or um, access or success, right? Like the, our identities are something that shouldn't be a liability. You know, it shouldn't be like, oh, this is part of who I am. I think about this a lot as a bisexual person. You know, sometimes when, when we come out as LGBTQI plus people, people are like, I love you no matter what. And they think they're being loving, right? And you're like, yeah, but um, you're kind of acting like my identity is this challenge. Obstacle, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like you're kind of acting like this is a liability and I'm telling you who I am, you know? Um, and so it's like, what I want someone to say, you know, if I were to come out again, I'm very out, so I'm not really coming out. <laughs> anymore, but if I, if I was coming out again, I would want someone to say, Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I love getting to know more about you. Like, I think that you're really special, right? I wouldn't want them to act like this was some dirty little secret that they could deal with. And I think it's the same um, in some ways when we talk about race. We're not trying to act like being black or the existence of differences in color is like wrong. We want to be able to be like, there are gifts um, in our identities. And so for black folks, um, who have gone through so much unspeakable generational trauma and horror um, contained in their very DNA and bloodlines is also so much power and resilience and beauty and creativity. Mm. And so we would not want to erase that, right? Like we wouldn't want to like sort of cut people off from this history, um, which so much of it is so harmful and yet so much of it is also so beautiful. And so I think really the honesty about the truth telling that you were naming is, is the way forward to be honest about the brutal parts of white supremacy and to be um, honest about the beautiful parts of differences in our diversity. Okay. Thank you. And thank you for allowing me to ask all these ignorant questions. <laughs> oh, no, I think that's a great question. I think yeah. that's a great question. Um, so I would love to talk to you about your personal experience of awakening. And again, I see in conservative circles, the, the notion or the terminology of being woke, demonized and, you know, alienated and put into this group of like, oh, these liberal crazy people that don't really know Jesus. And I'm like, I know it can be an annoying term if you think of a really aggressive social justice warrior yelling on the internet or something, but it's really beautiful because to me, I'm just like, it just says you were waking up, you were asleep on an issue, you slept on it, and then you woke up and now you're awake. And one of my very, very favorite quotes, I don't know who this is by, but it's like the expanded mind cannot return to its former dimensions. Yeah. I love that so, so much because that's, that's what wokeness is to me. It's like you woke up. 
Mm -hmm. And now you can't go back. You can't unsee what you've seen. And this is what happened to me. Like I've been, had brutal fights with my dad about like George Zimmerman, like as far back as, as these things started finally entering our collective conscious. And still it wasn't until this really powerful wave uh, during the George Floyd murder that I was like, oh my gosh, I did not realize how asleep I was still, even though my heart and my passion was there. Like you were saying, like always having this justice spirit and all the compassion in the world for the innocent lives that are being taken. Um, I still had no idea what was going on. So I know in your book, you talk about how obviously having transracial adoption as a part of your story, having two black daughters, that that was a huge part of your awakening. So can you describe kind of how you were asleep and then what this awakening was for you? Yeah. So I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, suburbs of Des Moines, Iowa, and the suburbs of in Des Moines are the same as suburbs most places, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and there, one major thing about the suburbs in Des Moines that maybe is even more than suburbs of other places is that I grew up in a space that was very overwhelmingly very very white. Um, same. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think you know I live you know my out in the suburbs of Chicago right now, um, and our neighborhood's very diverse, but in Iowa, it was not like that. And so I really internalized a lot of narratives about white supremacy, about race, about people of color. And some of the major narratives that I internalized are, we don't talk about that. Yeah. Um, and the sort of racism is bad, but that was kind of in the past. And my general orientation towards racism and um, white supremacy was sort of very intellectual or like moral. I was kind of like in my head, oh, white supremacy is bad. Therefore, I am against it. Right. Mm -hmm. But the picture I had of white supremacy was very individualistic, not systemic. It was very much, you know, the boogeyman in the clan, clan suit, not the way that we divest from, you know, neighborhoods and schools that are full of kids of color, for example. Yeah. It's just like someone's drunk uncle that says something weird. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, when really the part of racism that's scary is the amount of power behind it, right? Mm -hmm. The way that it's baked into government, media, access to money. And so I had these seeds growing up that I, I was fortunate enough to have some seeds of like, you know, my radicalization, even in the midst of this, right? I, at my school, which was very white um, and a very good school in many ways, there were a couple of teachers who recognized that justice spirit in me and really took the initiative to help me broaden my perspective by putting books in my hands, um, especially by black women, Alice Walker, Bell Hooks, Toni Morrison. And so I started to read these things and I was like, wow, I was kind of like a budding feminist. I was a survivor of, of abuse and, and assault. And so I had that fire in me already. And to see the layers that race added to these issues that I could already identify with made me start thinking, there's something, there's something more to this, right? Having my children um, who are born in Sierra Leone, living abroad in Sierra Leone and seeing the way that colonialism has really destroyed so much of um, the infrastructure in Sierra Leone and has really hurt the people there also was really huge in me sort of being able to wake up to the realities of white supremacy in our current day and in the current iteration in our society. Um, and then, yeah, I went, 
I started a job in St. Louis and I was working for the Episcopal Bishop's office and my job was to work with young people. And I was only in this job, you know, a few months and Michael Brown was killed. Um, Michael Brown is an unarmed black teenager shot by a white police officer, Darren Wilson. And I saw it on social media and I was just like, how did this happen, right? I knew, right, that police brutality was a problem, but I sort of, again, thought it was these kind of isolated incidents. I didn't really realize how systemic it all was. And so I started showing up because part of my job at working for the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri, um, working on behalf of young people, was that my job was to be where young people were. And in St. Louis at that time, young people were in the streets. And so I was in the streets, right? I came first to sort of kind of unsure of my role and kind of just wanting to show up and, and help, um, kind of feeling like a tug to be there because I knew people were hurting, but not really having a lot of direction. And the more I continued to show up, the more I continued to build relationships and have conversations with the young black activists on the ground there. And the more that I started to act in more true solidarity, I started to experience still a very small fraction of what the black activists were experiencing out on the streets. Um, but even getting a taste of that, right? Even the fear of, um, you know, rubber bullets or running from the tear gas or um, having to plan um, and make homemade gas masks, right? Like even just that, those few moments of fear that again, I could opt out of, I could go home, right? I, I didn't, I wasn't carrying around black skin on my body that would be weaponized no matter where I was. Even those moments helped me realize and kind of access my compassion to be like, maybe I should really listen to what these folks are saying and take them seriously. Um, and even once I committed to that, there was a lot of unlearning for me to do because I had, again, internalized so many ideas about whiteness and about people of color and the kind of stuff that I didn't realize was part of white culture because I had universalized it, right? My own need for control, my thinking that I knew better than these black activists in the streets how to do things. I didn't realize that that was really a part of my whiteness acting out. And I really had to unlearn that. And that's something I'm continuing to unlearn all the time. And I'm very, very grateful um, to the folks that I'm in relationship with who really stuck it out with me because I'm sure it was frustrating and painful, you know, when I didn't get it. Um, and yet, and they, you know, didn't owe me anything. And I think maybe very likely because of my black daughters and wanting really to make sure that they were okay, there were black women in particular who really stuck it out with me and helped me learn and understand. Mm -hmm. um, and so now this is like part of my life's work. I continue to organize here in Chicago uh, with an organization called Southside's, Southsiders Organized for Unity and Liberation, Soul. Mm -hmm. I'm on the board. Um, and it's a, it's a liberation organization focused a lot on black liberation with various campaigns, uh, several of them around criminal justice issues. Um, and it's an abolitionist organization. And so I kind of went from this person who sort of abstractly thought racism's bad to this person who started to feel it in my body. Whoa, this is real. This is serious. I have to tuck my black kids in at night and look them in the eyes and I have to be real about the world that they're waking up in tomorrow, right? This fear that black mothers have had for hundreds of years. I was starting to feel a fraction of that. Um, and then sort of seeing these problems, the more I was educated both relationally and also uh, by all of the sort of academic and narrative work that black scholars have done 
for years and years, the more I started to see that these weren't isolated issues that could be reformed, but they were deep issues that, like you said, have to be completely uprooted so that we can build something new. Yeah. And that's so exciting. Like it it brings me so much hope again, just to know that these organizations exist and that you and all these beautiful people are a part of it because it it is in desperate need of change. And I really believe it's a spiritual awakening, like a, a mandate from God to change these things. Yeah. Um, And I also really appreciated, just from my own understanding, the comparison that you made of sexual violence to police violence, um, about the idea of she was asking for it, look what you made me do. The argument that has me banging my head against a wall, and I'm trying to keep my emotions out of this, because again, compassion, I want to exercise it, but it's so hard to hear white people justify Black murder by saying, well he needed to do this. He didn't stand right. He didn't sit right. He didn't lay down right. He didn't put his hands up fast enough. He walked away. He like, I'm so sick of hearing these excuses. And when you said it's like sexual violence, what was she wearing? You made me do this. It's like, again, my response is always like, but did that justify murder? I had this sassy, mean little 19 year old slide into my DMs saying about George Floyd's criminal record or whatever. And I'm like, tell me why that warranted the death penalty. Tell me why. I didn't say that to her because I'm like, she's a bit of a lost cause right now in her sass. But, you know, what what do you say to that? Because my only argument is that, but did that warrant the death penalty? And it always goes back to like, well, if they just knew how to behave in front of police, it wouldn't have happened. And the same thing with Brianna Taylor. Well, her boyfriend had a gun, her boyfriend. And it's like, I am going to knock my head against a wall until I pass out arguing this. Yeah. Help. (laughs) Yeah. One thing I would say is there's so many stories of people that, um, you know, let's say like Ayanna Stanley Jones, who is like a little girl who was killed in her sleep, right? Um, On a botched police raid. There are stories of people who do do everything right and still it doesn't matter, right? Um, there's, There's stories of people with, you know, squeaky clean criminal records, which again, Elijah McClain, no cleaner record than that. Yeah. Which in black, even folks who have criminal records is it is in large part because the laws are written in order to target black and brown folks. Then they are in communities who are over-policed. So they're more likely to quote unquote, get caught when they're caught. They're more likely to be overcharged. They're more likely to have unfair hearings and unfair sentencing, um, in their, uh, like in their court cases. So even like people have have criminal records it's like that's also like the the mere existence that there are these folks with criminal records many people who are white who just like don't live in these neighborhoods um also like do similar things and don't have criminal records because we just don't get caught because we're not targeted in the same way yeah sorry i didn't want to interrupt you but i remember arguing with my dad about this because i was like I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but do you know how many times I've been with my white friends and everyone is carrying bags of cocaine, bags of Molly, bags of weed and, and in excess and just passing it around or doing it out in the open. And it's like, it's because there's no presence of police around us that nothing is happening to us for, for living in that state of being of comfort, of freedom, basically. And also even going back to like, the way we charge people for drugs, the fact that crack cocaine is accessible to people in these communities that are suffering versus 
cocaine is more accessible to white guys on Wall Street. And so right. all of these disparities exist. And it's like, we're all doing drugs, okay? So stop, right. stop with that. Right. <laughs> right, and maybe we should start to think of these things as like public health issues or ways like compassionate. Part of the problem is that our entire society um, is really based on this idea of like, our idea of justice is really a more of an idea of punishment. And that's not something that you necessarily see um, in God's view of justice, God's view of justice, like in the, in the prophet Amos, uh, the book of Amos, it says is like a, a mighty stream, right? Like, it's not like these sort of tit for tat scales that have to be balanced. You did something, now something has to be done for you. It's this overwhelming landscape changing, life giving force, right? That's what God's justice is about. Um, but yeah, this idea one thing I would say, too, about this idea of if he had just complied, if she had just complied, um, you know, then they then they wouldn't have been shot by the cops or they wouldn't have been killed by the police. Um, again, first of all, it's not true. But even if it was true, that logic is lynching logic. Lynching in our society, in our United States history, was not only about killing black folks. It was a psychological terror. There's a reason it was done very publicly, right? Black folks were lynched and left to hang, not only to hurt and punish this one black folk person who like stepped out of line, but to terrorize other black people, to send the message, stay in your place or you will be next. Yeah. And so this idea of just, you know, listen to white people's laws and follow white people's rules. And maybe if you do it perfectly, even though we keep moving the goalposts, even though we make it impossible, maybe if you do it perfectly, then you won't get hurt is not true, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's used in order to control and repress people. It's used to harm people psychologically so that they are afraid to fight back, to push back. Um, and so I think that connection was really important to me to see the lynching logic there um, and to learn from Dr. James Cone, uh, who's a black liberation theolo uh, theologian, to learn about how similar that was actually to the crucifixion that Jesus suffered. In the Roman Empire, when Jesus was alive, there was all kinds of ways to be killed. They were very creative about state punishment, right? Yeah. Crucifixion <laughs> was a very particular kind of capital punishment. Um, and it was reserved for people who were not citizens of Rome. And it was reserved for people who were enemies of the state, insurrectionists, right? Mm -hmm. Rabble rousers, troublemakers. And the idea, again, was a very public death in order to tell other folks stay in your place or else you'll be next. Wow. And so Jesus executed as someone who's sort of dangerous or threatening to the state of the empire of Rome. Um, you know, during the time of the Roman empire, there was all this repression. There were constant uprisings in occupied areas and the, and the Roman army would repress that with violent force. And this crucifixion was a psychological tool similar to lynching where it's like very public, very humiliating, and not only physically harmful, but very emotionally and mentally harmful for the community that was witnessing it. And mm -hmm. so recognizing that has helped me see um, the ways that God is in solidarity with people who suffer in this way, with people who are victims of state violence. And if God is in solidarity with those folks, it's very important for me to be in solidarity with those folks too. 
Oh, yeah, you're giving me chills. Realize, I never thought of the crucifixion that way, and I didn't realize that it was reserved specifically for basically the outsider and the person that was just threatening the way of life in that place. Yeah. That's really a stunning comparison. Um, I think probably an important question to ask as white people living in a society where we're having notably positive interactions with police. Like I live um, really close to gang territory in Los Angeles. And I remember my neighbor called for like a sound complaint and me and all my white girlfriends were sitting out here having dinner and the cops came and they were like flirting with us. And they were like, we want to make like good, you know, community relations. And they like stayed and like had a drink and stuff. And I thought it was humorous at the time. And then I've met someone stuck in the criminal justice system from that block and just hearing how different it is how they storm into their house and kill all their dogs and like just all of this crazy stuff and I'm like those same people are terrorizing these other people just mere blocks away and so I think probably one of the most uncomfortable things even for me human to human is like I don't even know how to behave around police anymore because I have this brewing fury towards them and at the same time i know they're also a product of this system how do we especially if we're related to or we know or we have respect for police officers in our world address the idea that this system is horribly broken and needs major reform but also oh this is my uncle or my husband or i want to wave my blue lives matter flag because i love someone that is doing this job Yeah, I can relate a lot to that because um, I have a family member who's a police officer and actually my spouse was in the military for seven years. And so um, the military in many cases, the United States military abroad acts very similarly to the way that police um, act and occupy here. And um, I was fortunate enough that my spouse came to the realization that that was true and that he didn't want to be a part of it and he's no longer um, with the military and in fact has used his story to organize with a group called Veterans for Peace, which tells the story of the true cost of war by having, you know, veterans share their experiences and the things that they saw and and the things that they did. Um, But I I say that to say I can, I can relate, right? I can relate to knowing someone, right? Or loving someone, even outside of my spouse, who's caught up in these systems that are perpetuating harm. A lot of people join professions like this you know there's plenty of violent people who are attracted to these professions because of the ability to abuse their power but there are people who just don't know really how messed up it is and they want to help and maybe they've sort of seen these positions lionized as heroic and so they kind of get caught up in the narrative and what i would say is um i think sometimes in leftist circles, hating cops can be kind of fashionable because uh, for white folks, I, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, for people of color, I would never say like, you shouldn't hate cops or whatever, like that's not my lane. People need to be able to have their own feelings. Um, but I think for white folks, sometimes we try to do this thing where we're like, we hate cops. And the reason we do that 
is to distance ourselves from the police in order to sort of like make ourselves the good white people as opposed to recognize, like you said, that we're all, all implicated in this system. The police exist to protect white property, to protect nice white ladies like me and you. And so we really are the benefiters of this system. So it makes sense that we wouldn't see and experience the violence in the same way. Um, but the fact of the matter is policing is not good for police either. I don't think it makes a lot of sense, um, you know, to sort of center police in, in these experiences to sort of think, you know, their experiences and their feelings matter more. Um, well, white people that. do, which is why I think we have to ask the question. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. It's like the immediate defense is like, well, I don't want to support BLM because my, my dad's a cop, right. you know, and then it's like shuts it down. Yep, totally. So I think it's like, it shouldn't be like the first thing we talk about is how bad this is for police when there's, you know, the blood of black folks running in the streets. And yet I think it is very true. And um, as a Christian, for me, it's actually really important to me to name the way that just like whiteness hurts white people, um, you know, the target of white supremacy is people of color. And yet there's casualties on all sides because it is a death dealing force. Mm. And it's the same with policing, right? The targets of policing is to repress and control. It's to protect capital, to repress and control, um, you know, various groups of people to sort of get money out of systems by over policing and, and, and overcharging folks. Um, but even though that's the target, the fact is that there's moral injury happening anytime you participate in these systems. So police isn't, policing isn't good for police officers either. You see this in their high rates of PTSD. You see this in their high rates of things like domestic violence. Um, I, I took a class in seminary about domestic violence from a former police officer who taught me um, and showed us the statistics that 40% of police families experience domestic violence. Um, and that's what? Some, yes. Yes. Wow. And so that's something I actually really related to as being um, the spouse of a veteran because it's very similar on military posts. There's traumatized people who are in a culture of very toxic masculinity where you can't ask for help. You can't show weakness. If you do, it puts your career at risk. It puts your, I don't know, manhood at risk or whatever. Um, and so people who are traumatized are, are reenacting this trauma quite violently. And so I would say that the data is pretty clear that policing is not good for police either. Wow. And so you should ask a question, you know, who, who's benefiting from this? Who's benefiting from a system that separates, um, you know, white folks from people of color who sort of targets particularly impoverished folks, who targets trans folks and queer folks, that targets disabled folks, people who are mentally ill. These folks are all people who are more likely to be targets of police brutality. Who's benefiting from keeping those people down? Who's benefiting from the way that these police are used to enforce the system and then are chewed up and spit out by this system, right? Who's benefiting from that? Because it's not even the police, right? It is a very, very small group of people with a lot of power and they are benefiting from keeping us all in fighting so that we can't band together to build a better world. Mm -hmm. And so um, again, like I don't think in this whole equation that police are being hurt in the same way or in the same degree as people of color who are, who are being killed um, and who are being harassed and terrorized. And yet it's very, very clear that to me at least in order to have some humanity for even police officers, we have to build something better. And I, um, I don't know what like accountability will look like for police officers when we build this new world, right? 
Um, but as a person of faith, as, as, a, as a clergy person, I am very willing to receive the confessions of people who have been part of toxic systems because I've been that person too. And I'm very, very willing to receive people with open arms once they are ready to leave the system and to, to do something better, right? Because police, just like I talked about my spouse who's in the military, similarly with soldiers, right? We lionize soldiers. You can't criticize the troops. You can't criticize the war because otherwise you're criticizing soldiers and they're fighting for your freedom and yeah. they're at risk, right? There's this whole narrative. So the reason that Veterans for Peace, which my spouse organized us with, is so powerful is that no one can use that argument against veterans saying these things, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I would love to see is police in mass telling the truth, maybe deconstructing some of these narratives that they've been taught, telling the truth about their experiences and banding together with folks that have, you know, also experienced brutality or, or harm, um, who have experienced the effects of white supremacy, really show some accountability so that we can build something new together, right? Yeah. Um, I think that would be really beautiful. And of course, like, I can't say the way that, that that would work because people of color and people who have been harmed by state violence have to be the ones to name. What would justice look like? Is there a possibility that once there was true accountability, restitution, reparations, you know, that we'd be able to work together in some way? But for me as a person of faith, I believe in receiving that confession and then helping people to be empowered to transform their lives in a way that is, you know, building something for the greater good. Yeah. You're just reminding me of the MLK quote about only light can drive out darkness. So I, I know that sometimes people get upset with me because I have so much grace with the caveat of you also have to repent and change. But I do have a lot of grace for very difficult, complicated people that are in a lot of darkness you know, like the police or like people that are a part of this violence, but I don't see a way out of that violence without also giving them the opportunity for resolution and grace and love and like a pathway out of that sort of toxic thinking. Yeah. And you're reminding me too, I once was with a man who lived on Camp Pendleton, which is like a military place. And yeah. it was so common to hear men screaming at their families, to hear women crying like they were being beaten up. And I just remember just walking down the street and feeling so hopeless. And it was also so overwhelming. I felt that as a part of the culture, like this yeah. is just normal. I don't even like I, it was a very hopeless feeling at the time. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing. Like if you see that police video of those police having a whole family on the grounds, including children, right? How, how do you feel when you go home to your family? You're telling me you felt really good and spiritually, energetically, you were just on the up and up and you did the right thing by people. Like there's no freaking way you're in health in your spirit after that. There is this um, medium post, and if you remind me, Brenda, I'll like send it to you so you can link it if people would be interested. But there's this medium post that's called Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop. That oh, really I saw it. Yeah. Go yes. ahead, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it really raises these questions, right? It's a police officer very similar to what I was talking about with Veterans for Peace, who is telling the truth about the things that he saw and experienced and even the things that he you know, perpetuated and did and asking the question to other police officers do you feel good about this? Are you right in your soul? Um, and the answer, of course, is, is no. And I think the biggest difficulty is that in order for folks to participate in systems like this and to perpetuate harm like this, they have to internalize some narratives about what they're doing. And so the, the hardest part is actually deconstructing 
that these narratives um, are lies and mm -hmm. that they're harming you and other people um, because you know, I think probably there are people who there, there are police who hold children at gun gunpoint or, you know, cuff six year old kids and then go home at night and think they did a good thing because they've internalized ideas around what justice is like. They've internalized white supremacist ideas about, you know, what people of color are like. And so a major part is deconstructing those lies and asking where did we learn these narratives and who's benefiting from them? Mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of, again, recovering like our, our spirit, there really is this moral injury to our spirits when we hurt one another like this. Yeah. Are you on a time constraint, Elle? I have more questions, but I can let you go if you have to go. No, I, the, I just have to be done by like, I have like 40 more minutes. So. Oh, oh, okay, great. Yeah. I won't yeah. hold you that long. I feel like I just want to wrap it up with, what you say of property damage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Yeah. Yes. Do you want me to just like summarize it? Yeah. Okay. So when I first was sort of, um, when I was first sort of hearing about and participating in the movement for Black Lives and, and the uprising in Ferguson, and I saw property damage, I was very frustrated and heartbroken. I was like, why would you ruin our message? Like, I believe in this cause. I believe in ending police brutality. Why would you threaten our message, um, you know, with smashing windows um, or, you know, stealing from stores or, or lighting a trash can on fire, right? Um, and I really felt that way. I considered myself a pacifist. I don't use that term for myself anymore. Um, Although I am committed to what I call militant nonviolence, but um, interesting. I, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the way that we've pacifism and peace has really been used um, to mean like a like white comfort, right? It just means like something that doesn't inconvenience anyone, um, which is not necessarily actually what real peace is. Real peace tells the truth and gets to the root of issues and makes sure that everyone has what they need to thrive. And when we talk about you know, peaceful protests, which don't involve blocking the street or something. Well, there's nothing inherently violent about blocking the street. Um, what we're saying is it's inconvenient, right? Right. Even the term keep the peace makes yeah. me think like, oh, wow, that, that really is baked in there because that says keep what we have going, yeah. which is peace. And, and that's why it's like no justice, no peace. Right. Because and there, there, there is no peace. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's not honest about the fact that for, you know, people of color and black and brown folks, they're not experiencing peace because of the way that their communities are over-policed and terrorized by state violence. And so I really had to unlearn a lot of ideas I had about property damage. Um, and I think it's possible that this is maybe the most controversial chapter in the book, actually. Um, but I, I share some of my processes around that. Um, one thing is that I would be in Ferguson, like at an action. Um, and then I'd like go home and see it reported on, on the news. And I'd be like, whoa, that was not what I saw, right? So that was, that was one thing in my head too that made me start wondering who's in control of the narrative and who's benefiting from this narrative, right? Um, and there were some journalists who were really faithful about telling the truth, but there were also plenty of um, news media outlets that would just regurgitate whatever the police said instead of really doing some true investigative reporting. Wow. And so, for example, um, you know, and news media is also like part of business and they care about what sells. And so, 
you know, there was maybe like a car on fire one night in November. And then for the next year and a half, anytime we talk about Ferguson, we pay, play that same car on fire on loop to be like the whole city of St. Louis is burning, which is just not true. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I also started to notice, you know, for example, there's a bush that caught on fire and, and there was, um, you know, people saying some journalists saying that, that the, protesters like little bush on fire but if you look at the bush you can very clearly see there's a tear gas canister at the at the foot of the bush and there were some reporters who did report that um but again the narrative is so strong right like black people are criminal black people are animals black people are violent black people are whatever um and so it really leaks into our our narratives and and the way that it gets things get reported um And now I do feel differently about um, property destruction. I think that property destruction is not inherently violent. We use the word violence in this society because we're in a very capitalist society in which we really value property. And because we really value um, property and we have this sort of I don't know, transactional view of human beings. We value people based on what they can produce. And so property gets this almost like imbued with this like soul or something in the, in the narrative in the United States. And so when property is damaged, people get very um, angry. And I was one of those people too. And what I started to see um, was that we have been so numb to state violence because it's been so normalized that we just have stopped seeing it, right? Why is it that there are people who can deny other people health care to the point of killing them? And those people aren't in prison. But if you break a window, you're in prison. It's because what counts as violence and who gets to decide is really up to the people in power who, again, are invested in protecting their own property and their own capital. And so I started looking at property violence or property destruction is not inherently violent, but really contextual. There are some forms of property violence that are property destruction that are violent, right? Like um, the example I gave was the burning of black churches. That is a violent form of property destruction because it calls upon a context of a history of terrorism and white supremacy, right? Um, Lynching, the KKK. So like burning a black church is violent because of the psychological terrorism that goes along with that. um, And because of the way that's been used historically, stealing some stuff from Target is not inherently violent. Target's going to be okay. We don't hold funerals for windows at Target. You don't get, you know, you don't get. We have. All right. I know. I mean, people, people get so invested, right? Um, And so one thing that I try, that I have had to learn is to remember that when we see people who are acting out of pain, right? Um, Acting out of trauma. These are people who are traumatized, who are acting in self-defense against a government that is actively trying to kill them. Um, these are also, in the case of if we're talking about Black folks, these are also people whose ancestors' very bodies were stolen and who are operating on stolen land. And there's been very little, if I mean really not, none, um, that's happened in our country to really make up for that or pay any sort of reparations or restitution. And so... People who, um, people who, for example, break a window and take something from the CVS or the Quick Trip or whatever, um, I don't consider that inherently violent because 
people who are poor, people who are oppressed, people who are suffering, deciding what happens to capital, deciding what happens to property is actually inherently liberatory. And we have to remember that these are people who's in their very communities have been divested from intentionally for hundreds of years. And so we really need to check our perspectives, right? If we're more outraged about broken windows than broken necks in the case of people like Freddie Gray, our priorities are messed up. Um, and the fact of the matter is in Ferguson, um, you know, when the quick trip burned down, I was upset at the time. Looking back, no one would have cared about anything in Ferguson or Michael Brown if that quick trip had not burned down. And, and that's very obvious to me because like a half a year later in Baltimore, when Freddie Gray was killed, there were sustained ongoing protests for weeks and it wasn't until the CVS was broken into that really the national news media and our conversation as a whole kind of turned to that situation too. Um, and so we've really put people in a situation where they're not being heard, um, where they're traumatized, where they're acting in self-defense. And so I think learning some compassion and, and doing a little bit of power analysis is the biggest thing. As white folks, we're not taught to do power analysis. And again, there's a reason on purpose we're not taught to do that. It benefits certain people for us not to think about who has the power, who makes decisions, and who benefits from that. But even just a little bit of power analysis would say it's a very reasonable response for people who are being killed with impunity to lash out um, and to take the things that they need, right? Like it's actually, to me, more violent that we lock up baby formula mm. than it is to loot baby formula. It is violent that we have created conditions where mothers cannot get baby formula to feed their babies. That is violent and no one's in prison for that, you know? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Dang. And I like that that puts the responsibility back on media. And I don't like the way media has been vilified, obviously, because journalists, the really good ones, which there are many, have a code of ethics that they have to stick to. They are truth tellers by their job description. So I'm not talking about that. Like whoever does the due diligence to look at the tear gas canister under the Bush is a journalist and they're beholden to that truth. Which is why in Ferguson, there were, there were reporters who were arrested, right? There were, um, like in, in Ferguson during the uprising, the police would purposely tear gas and damage like the cameras and the, and the property of the journalists so that they couldn't tell the story. There were well, journalists how about who were that? arrested so that they couldn't tell the story. Right. So I totally agree. I think, um, you know, a free press is like essential, especially in a fight against white nationalism and fascism. And one of the first things that like fascists do is demonize the press. And so I agree. It's like, it's not about that. It's more, it's not about the individual news journalists who a lot of them are out there really telling the truth. It's more about um, larger corporations that perpetuate a particular narrative. Yeah, so those are larger corporations, and we know some media news outlets are beholden to those very wealthy, very powerful people, and they have to present certain narratives, which is interesting when you say these places didn't get attention until there was property damage, because it's like, well, then it's not really the people of color, the Black people that are at fault for that. It's like with, um, his name is escaping me, kneeling on the football field. Copernic. Yeah, Colin Kaepernick. Um, again, makes me want to bang my head against the wall. How many conservative white people said that was so wrong and was so disrespectful? And I'm like, 
yeah. And now a CVS is burnt down. They like, we have tried every single thing. It's like, it's a, it, you can tell it's a last resort again, just like Martin Luther King says, it is the language of the unheard. And for sure during the uprising, there was this really, um, there was this narrative that somehow like the, the protesters and the folks who were, um, I don't use the word looting anymore. I use redistributing property or liberating property because again oh, that's think, controversial <laughs> yeah again I think um I actually think our black communities black and brown communities have been stolen from in the first place and so redistributing this property back to me is that an, an act of justice but regardless right in Ferguson there was this narrative that somehow like the people marching in the streets and the people who were looting or redistributing property were the same groups and overwhelmingly actually were, they were different people, but it really served to sort of demonize uh, the narrative around the protesters. And of course you heard very little about the protesters who the next morning would get up and you know sweep the streets and clean up yeah. the, the broken glass out of the streets. That didn't get the same kind of attention um, because we are so, we are so, defensive and unwilling to be held accountable for white supremacy, that we're trying to look for any possible flaw or fault to make it not our fault, right? Not white supremacy and really some sort of flaw in, in black and brown folks. Um, and so it's just, it's much more attractive to us to blame people for their own suffering as opposed to look at the way that, that their suffering um, is something that we're complicit in and that actually, we all have a part in not only creating this problem, but being a part of the solution. And it's something that affects all of us. Yeah. The hot phrase defund the police sucks because it sounds so triggering and so terrifying and it immediately on conservative television turns into abolish the police and we don't want them. And it's like, it's not as catchy. It's not as exciting, but it's, it should be reallocate funds <laughs> to more, you know, productive areas. I'll actually push back on the defund the police thing because I think- um, oh, Tell me, please. Yeah, I think um, there is this like narrative, right? That it's not um, convincing or, or whatever to, um, or that it's scary, right? To white folks. Um, and what I would say is that this, this phrase defund the police came directly from black activists on the front lines that are the most affected people. Mm -hmm. And black activists who are the ones being targeted by the police actually have every incentive to get it right. And they have every, they have the kind of knowledge about strategy that we don't have. Um, and not all people who want to defund the police are abolitionists. Some of them are. Um, I'm an abolitionist. My book's oh. about abolition. Wow, I'm getting, uh, yeah, cool. But, <laughs> I'm wrong. But there's, you know, there's, there's something to be said about the fact that, for example, the abolition movement is a decades old movement and that there's like whole political paradigms. There's like whole books written about it. There's scholars who have studied it for years. The architects of abolition are black women, most of them survivors of violence, um, black feminists. And so those of us who are newer to the conversation, it's easy to say like this phrase isn't like good marketing, right? Um, but maybe those of us who are a little bit newer to the conversation instead should listen to the folks who have been building this movement even before I was born and say, perhaps they know something about this that, that we don't know. And it's true that, you know, defund the police is like very controversial on Fox News. Black Lives Matter a few years ago was very controversial um, to the mainstream. And the more that we sort of try to placate um, this regressive sort of form of communication, 
white nationalists, white supremacy will never compromise with liberation. We have to move forward and drag people along. And I do believe, like, because I believe in transformation, because I've experienced transformation myself, I do believe that people will come along. A lot of us take a lot longer than other people, but I, I think it's possible. I really do. Mm, me too. Me too. I really, really appreciate that correction because I, I get frustrated. I think I immediately went from like the pro-choice, pro-life rhetoric and like all of these different things I do think, or democratic socialism is another one that drives me crazy because I'm like, don't adopt the word that everyone's so scared of, like make a new word, you know, but like that is that is a beautiful uh, slap across the face for me because I didn't realize the origins of that and I need to research that more. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to tell you some you know places to start if you want to read um, some of the architects of the abolition movement. I would recommend um, Dr. Angela Davis and she has a book that's a very fast read and it's very good called Our Prisons Obsolete. Um, and then Ruth Wilson Gilmore is another architect of the abolition movement and and both of them are just so rooted in love and like the idea that we can all be transformed. I think sometimes there's this picture um, because of this righteous anger that so often, you know, fuels justice movements. There's this like picture, um, I don't know, that like, that there's like hatred behind all of this. But what my experience has been is that there's this this stubborn hope in mm. the ability for us to all transform, to be transformed. And that really this is rooted in love, love for people, love for communities, love, love for ourselves. Um, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore in particular, I just, I, I just, her, her messages are just like so loving and transformative. So if you want to learn a little bit more about like that history, those are the two people that I usually point people to like off the bat. What beautiful clarity too, because it, it does sound hateful and aggressive when it's presented by primarily, well, exclusively white people, I would say. So that's that's such a beautiful distinction that's rooted in love and hope. And I 100% believe everything you're saying. I think awakenings occur because it's time to change. And I, I believe that Jesus's heart is right there with us. Yes. So the last thing I'd love for you to just address is why the name baptized in tear gas, because yeah. I found that so profound and beautiful. And I just wanted to hear from you. What made you choose that title in particular? Yeah. So um, a little story about that title too. Normally, well, you probably know this because you just wrote a book. Um, when you like write a book, the editors and stuff are always like, don't get attached to your title because I'm going to give you a new title, which is like, you know, good because those people know more about that stuff than I do. I don't know anything about that. So, um, I like respected that advice, but that's, that was like my working, my working sort of title or like how I conceptualized of the book. And so I was really um, grateful that marketing also saw, um, the value in that title. Mm. Tear gas from white moderate to abolitionist. I actually have it right here. Oh, yes. Thank you. Beautiful. Everyone, please pick up this book. And it's so inviting to the nice white girls because we need to catch up <laughs> and, it, and it's that invitation. It is totally like me as like a, you know, nice white lady from the Midwestern suburbs trying to be like talking to other, especially nice white Christian ladies, right? But but hopefully also, you know, to, to other folks too, right? I've, I've heard other people um, who don't fall within those descriptors also um, tell me that it was it was a really important book for them. Yeah. Um, but the reason I use the term baptize and tear gas um, is that in our Lutheran tradition, we talk about baptism 
in a variety of different images, but some of the images we use are incredibly stark and kind of intense. Um, we talk about drowning our sin, right? Drowning, quote unquote, the old Adam and rising again with Christ. We talk about baptism as death and resurrection or death and rebirth. And so the reason I use the term baptized in tear gas was that there were parts of me and, and parts of my worldview and parts of my theology that had to die in order for something new to rise up in me, for these new relationships, a new worldview, for me to learn how to be, you know, a better parent to my Black teenagers, um, for me to be able to have these deep and meaningful relationships with Black folks that I'm in relationship with. There were so many things that were keeping me from that, that had to die in order for me to be reborn and for me to have this transformation moment, this conversion moment. Um, baptism is a moment of transformation, of conversion. It's like something that, it's like the whole cosmos changes, right? Um, mm. It's like ontological, right? Like when someone is baptized in, um, in the Christian faith, it's like this moment of just like total transformation. Um, and in this case, you know, typically we, we are baptized with water. Um, some people get dunked, some people get sprinkled, but usually it's water, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but in this case, the substance was really um, seeing and experiencing that state violence for myself. And so um, the term baptized in tear gas was that these experiences was really quite the awakening, um, sometimes like a very painful awakening, a very like rude awakening. It wasn't gentle, right? It, was, mm. it wasn't the sort of um, baptism uses water, which can be dangerous and powerful, but is also like life-giving. There's nothing life-giving about tear gas, right? So this baptism in tear gas was very, very, very um, difficult. Um, and even the sort of outside of the actual literal tear gas, these experiences of me sort of realizing about how, how many things that I've learned weren't true and, and my part in all of this and, and what was holding me back and, and all of that was very painful, right? Um, to let go of, and it was so worth it, right? Um, mm. Discipleship is costly and worth it. And that's, that's what, what Jesus tells us when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus is like not talking metaphorically about a cross. He gives this talk to his disciples right as he's telling them that the state is gonna execute him as an enemy of the state. And he's saying, listen, I know what empire does to leaders, visionary leaders of love and liberation. And I know the cost and I'm marching right towards it. And if you want to be with me, you got to be ready to march for that cross too. Um, and of course, we know um, those of us who are Christians believe that the story ends then with resurrection. Like the cross is real and painful and yet it's not the end. The empire executing the rabble rouser is not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Jesus rising again is like a powerful statement. Jesus's death is a statement of solidarity with those who suffer and his rising again is this powerful statement of hope that that suffering is not the end and that um, we can have a better world, right? A better world is coming and we can be a part of building it. And so that's my hope for Baptized in Tear Gas is that all of us can kind of journey together on this self-reflection to kind of do some more deconstructing about what are the lies we've been told? What are the narratives we believe? What experiences as white people have we universalized when they're actually very particular to whiteness? How can we be on this journey together and continue to learn and grow um, and continue to be, you know, reborn again? Mm. Thanks for sending me to church. <laughs> yeah. 
So beautiful. So where can everybody find you and the book? And please, please promote away. Yes. Okay. So um, if you go to my website, which is ldowd.com, E-L-L-E-D-O-W-D.com, there'll be like a pop-up on my home screen that has various ways that you can order. Um, You can order on Barnes & Noble, IndieBound. You can order directly from the publisher, which is Broadleaf Books, or you can order from Amazon right now. Um, So if you go to my website, ldowd.com, it has buttons for all those options, or you can just go to those places and search baptized in tear gas from white moderate to to abolitionist or search my name, ldowd. If you want to find me on social media, on uh, Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter, my handle is at hownowbrowndowd. Okay. Before I got married, my last name before I got married was Brown. So it's like, <laughs> um, and then if you want to find me on TikTok, uh, my handle is LDowd Ministry. And then on Facebook, which is really where um, I'm probably the most active, which I know is like so like where the old people hang out, but like, listen, I'm a church person. So like the church is frequently, especially mainline is frequently like 15 years behind everybody else. So the church is very much on Facebook. So, you know, so happy you're there. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if, if you want to check me out on Facebook, um, it's facebook.com slash ministry. Um, and, and on that Facebook, I'll like share my sermons. I, I preach, you know, most Sundays I share a lot of resources Um, I share, you know, interviews or conversations or podcasts like this too. So um, that's like a really great way to get in touch. But any of those ways are a good way to get in touch. Uh, At LDAO.com, there's also like a contact form and a collaboration form um, and a calendar where you can see like where I'm preaching next or where you can catch up with me. So I would love, I love to hear from folks. I'd love to hear from you. So thank you all so much for being in this conversation, especially if you've made it all the way to the end. We love you all so much. God bless.